Good morning. You, uh, you all have the gift of hospitality. I have felt so, so welcomed in these days. I want to thank again uh, my new friends, uh, Stephen and Ruth Dill, uh, who I've gotten to know over these days, which has been a blessing for me. And, uh, and Steve just took me to see the chapel and the windows and the window yesterday. I've never been so welcomed by a church that before I would come, they actually made stained glass windows of the texts I was going to be preaching from. What an amazing welcome to a visiting preacher. I've never had the experience of really having the texts I was preaching from, Matthew 25 and Luke 4, to be on the windows of a church, so I wanted pictures and all the, all the information. This is an amazing experience for me. I'm blessed to be, to be here. This is going to be a week in Washington and in this nation that exemplifies the very worst of our politics. And it reminded me of a story I'd like to begin with today. Uh, you kindly introduced me as an author, and it's true, I've written a few books, and when you write books, people call you and, or write you and say, please, we've read your book, would you please come and talk to us? So I got one of those letters, and the book was called The Soul of Politics. The Soul of Politics, which politics has so little of in these days. The letter said, we've all read your book, would you please come talk to us? A typical letter, but it wasn't from a typical group of people. It wasn't a bookstore, a community, a church. It was from inmates at Sing Sing Prison in upstate New York. Would you come and talk to us? So, sounded interesting. So I said, sure, wrote back, when do you want me to come? The young brother writes back and says, well, he says, we're free most nights. (laughs) He was funny. He said, we're kind of a captive audience here. We'd love you to come. Now, the New York Theological Seminary has an MDiv program inside the walls of Sing Sing. If you're an inmate, you can sign up and become a minister inside the walls while you're there. So I had this, the warden was very friendly, let me in, and I had, for about four hours, I had this room down in the bowels of that very famous institution for about four hours with about 100 guys. Just me and them the whole time. I will never forget what one of them said to me, uh, during that session, he said, he said, Jim, I want you to understand that all of us here at Sing Sing, almost all of us, come from about four neighborhoods in New York City. About four neighborhoods. It's like a train, he says. It starts in neighborhoods like mine and ends up in places like Sing Sing. What a powerful image, metaphor of a a train, urban train, beginning in only certain zip codes, ending up inevitably in places like Sing Sing. Then he said, but I've been converted. While I was here, I've come to Christ. I'm I'm converted, and now when I get out, I'm going to go and stop that train. Darren Ferguson is his name. He's now out. He's a preacher. He's stopping that train every day in New York City. He's a dear friend of mine. And he would probably ask all of us on this day, he'd probably ask, what trains are you trying to stop? Because if we say we're Christians or or observant Jews or 
committed Muslims, you know, what does our faith mean in the world? If it doesn't mean anything in the world, it doesn't mean much of anything at all. What about that train of mass incarceration where drug use is the same exactly for whites and blacks, but incarceration is overwhelmingly black and brown? Not even close. Did you know this, this uh, stories of this young rising mayor of Tallahassee in Florida? That's near here, right? Florida and Alabama. <laughs> I thought you might have seen that story. Well, I, I, I don't know this young man yet. I'm going to get to know him soon, I hope. But he's rising up. And uh, in the state of Florida, 1.6 million, get the number right, 1.6 million former felons can't vote in the state of Florida. Overwhelmingly, black and brown voters can't vote. What would happen to Mr. Gullen, this rising young Tallahassee mayor, if all those voters could vote? His victory would be automatic. I think he's going to win anyway. His victory would be automatic. You think that's accidental? That's on purpose. It's a train. Certain zip codes in particular, inevitable destinations. These are systems and structures. As I said yesterday, our racial geography, which separates us even in our churches, is done by policy to keep us from one another. So moms don't talk about their hopes and dreams for their kids and fears across racial lines. That happened, the trains would be in trouble. So out of these days we've had, these wonderful couple days that I've enjoyed so much, I want you to go away and ask yourself, what trains in Mobile are you going to stop? Because the thing is about, I think the mayor's coming here and local officials, you're going to, I want to hear from these local leaders because they know what's going on here and I don't. I'm not from Mobile. They'll tell you what's going on. I hope they're honest and straightforward and tell you what they really think. But one thing I like about mayors and local officials, they have to do stuff. They have to solve problems. Washington, D.C., we just blame each other for the problem. And that's it. You blame each other for the problem, it never gets solved. Washington, D.C. does not leave and look for solutions. They look for blame. It's hard to do that when you're county commissioners and mayors and uh, local leaders uh, like we have to today, um, uh, redevelopment corporations that have to actually do work, right? So I want you to take out of these days what you're going to do here, what trains you're going to stop in Mobile. So I was having breakfast with a member of Congress who's a young man, he's a Christian, um, and he was just so distressed about faith and politics and what Christians were or weren't saying about what's happening now in the country. The policies, the statements, the lying, the attitudes, and people remaining silent. And he said, puzzling, he looked at me over breakfast, he said, Jim, what about Jesus? What about Jesus? Now this, this young man is a Christian and a Democrat. Can you imagine a Christian and a Democrat? <laughs> it's just astounding. <laughs> but some would think that in your state, uh, other places too. But he also thinks that question isn't as being asked by his party and his colleagues. I wrote a book once called God's Politics. The subtitle was how the right gets it wrong and the left doesn't get it. <laughs> How the right gets it wrong and the left doesn't get it. So he asked this question about Jesus, and that is the question. You know, the symbol, everyone says we're in a crisis, and they're right. 
Did you know the symbol for crisis in Chinese, Chinese language, the symbol is a combination of two symbols. One is danger and one is opportunity. The symbol for crisis in Chinese is two symbols, danger and opportunity. We've been talking about some of the dangers these days and the opportunities. We are in great danger. We are, I said last night, any day a day away from a constitutional crisis, uh, moral crisis. Uh, democracy itself is in more danger than any time in my lifetime, and I'm 70 years old. Great danger. It's real. But we also have an opportunity. Because sometimes in crisis, what Christians do, it's kind of an amazing thing, they decide to go back to Jesus. <laughs> what an idea. For Christians to go back to Jesus again. It's called coming home. Jesus has a lot of, he's good on comebacks, I said in church yesterday. Good for comebacks. Coming home, coming back. I would say the opportunity is there if we go deeper in three ways. Deeper in three ways. One, we have to start not with politics. We have to start with our relationship to God, to faith. Whatever that means for you, and I want to respect members of different faith communities from the city in this room, whatever your faith is, to go deeper in relationship to your faith. What are the disciplines, the quiet spaces, the spiritual disciplines that cause you to go deeper into your faith? Do them now. Do them now. Take the time. Do them now. Second, to go deeper into relationship with each other, particularly, particularly across racial lines. Across racial lines. On Wednesday, I'm going to Milwaukee. Because a couple of months ago, there was a police officer, two in the morning, driving by a CBS, and he saw a car parked across two, two parking spaces, a parking violation. So he wanted to stop and wait to see when this guy came out to give him a ticket. He's a white police officer. 23-year-old young black man came out of the CBS. And in a few moments, he was on the ground, handcuffed and tased three times for a parking violation. It's all on video. Six buddies were called, six other cop cars. And on tape are things like, I was hoping to get one tonight. Problem was, that 23-year-old black man is Sterling Brown. He's a rookie for the Milwaukee Bucks. And the cop didn't follow basketball. He didn't know who this was. Well, the Milwaukee Bucks were enraged and said so. The mayor said so. The police chief. The whole community is in disarray. And Wednesday night, they're having an event in the Bucks arena. And they asked me to come and, and be their speaker. And then a panel, like today, following and the community is completely polarized because our racial geography s separates us. And white parents don't know what black parents feel every morning and about their kids going to school. They just don't know. A lot of white parents in this church think they care in relationship to their uh, black brothers and sisters, but they don't know. 72% of white Christians, nationally, 72% believe these police incidents, lethal shootings of mostly young black people are isolated incidents, the poll said. 85% of black Christians say they're systemic structural, part of a pattern in their lives. 72% of white Christians, 85% of black, what are the white Christians saying? They're exaggerating? They're black brothers and sisters. They're 
lying, they're making this up. Corinthians says, when one part of the body suffers, what does it say? We all suffer. When one part of the body won't even acknowledge the pain of the other part of the body, we got a Corinthians problem. Not just a national political problem. We got a Corinthians problem. So what are you doing in this town to 75% of white people in America? Now, I'm, I'm being a little tough today. We've been here a couple days. want to make sure I'm being clear. 75% of white Americans have not one significant relationship to a person and family of color in their social circle. It's not just Alabama, it's nationally. What does it mean to be the body of Christ? I said the first day that what's at stake now in this nation is the soul of the nation and the integrity of faith. The soul of the nation and the integrity of faith. If we say we are followers of Jesus, let me just speak to the followers of Jesus here. I think there are a few of you out there. Our identity in Christ is our primary identity. So when we're given false racial, ethnic, cultural, national, class, identities, and they predominate, will never be the beloved community that Dr. Martin Luther King called for. He worked around here somewhere, didn't he? So that when anybody says, something else is first, my white identity, my middle class identity, or America first, you can tell them, That's a heresy. That's a biblical heresy. Because our identity in Christ precedes everything else. And all the others come after that. So when the phrase white Christian, for example, if the operative word in the phrase white Christian is not Christian, but white. The gospel of Jesus Christ is in jeopardy, which reconciles us to God and to each other. So in the middle of this crisis, a number of us as church elders, we only call ourselves that because we're all old, uh, we got together. Uh, I did this with uh, Bishop Michael Curry. You know, you know he is a presiding bishop. Church, you'll know him because he's the one who preached in the royal wedding. Did you see that? The gospel preached to the largest audience in the world. <laughs> My buddy Michael Curry was the preacher. Um, we had a retreat at his place up in New York. This very multiracial, many women and men group of elders went on retreat to ask what to do about this crisis. And it was Ash Wednesday. Last Ash Wednesday. So, of course, we were full of lament and confession, our own complicity in all of these sins. You never start by just attacking others. You start where it's in yourself. So we prayed a lot. Prayed, confessed, wept. Ash Wednesday. And then all during Lent, we prayed over what we should say, and we did a declaration I'm going to briefly mention in a moment called Reclaiming Jesus. Reclaiming Jesus. We decided that in that declaration not to, we were all Christian leaders, but not to call ourselves Christians, because even that word now has become tainted, to call ourselves followers of Jesus, which felt better. So we did, and we wrote this declaration and released it finally after Lent and Easter, released it at Pentecost. Washington, D.C., the week of Pentecost. And, you know, we, 
we didn't know what to do, uh, really, to release it and what people would think. And so young people are much better at this than us old guys. I've got this young team of video videographers on my staff. And one, this guy's 25, and he made this video of this, just our voices, all these elders. And he put it out on Facebook, and within five days, a million people had responded. Five more days, a million more. Now five million people have responded to this video. I can send you a copy of this. I should have brought one along. It's only about four minutes, and you can show it in church someday. Elders speaking about what it means to reclaim Jesus. So let's have a service, we said. So, you know, Washington, D.C., everything going on. Uh, who's going to come? And we picked the biggest, <laughs> biggest church close to the White House because we're going to go have a candlelight vigil at the White House to deliver our declaration. Well, it's a big church. holds a 1,000 people, and our, my team was saying, we've got to fill it, we've got to fill it. How are we going to fill it? Publicity, you know? I said, it's going to be okay. We're going to fill it. I think, I think the time has come for this. In fact, could you get an extra church alongside just in case there's an overflow? So they did. Really? I said, yeah, extra church. So when 1,300 people on a Thursday night in Washington, D.C. filled a church that's never full on Sunday morning, ever, and we had to have an overflow to the other church, Luther Place. This is... This is a national city Christian church. This is the Disciples of Christ National Church, downtown Washington, D.C. Beautiful pillars, gorgeous steps, but 1,300 people overflow were there, and so Luther Place across the street, that got filled up too, 700 more, and then we had about that many more on the steps, and we didn't know what to do with all the people because they couldn't hear on the steps. We had the Howard Gospel Choir on the inside, always worth listening to, and then these elders, national preachers, Jim Forbes, others you might know, uh, and the miracle is they all kept to five minutes. I mean, this was a miracle, five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> all these preachers. But we couldn't, what do you do with people on the outside? And all of a sudden, this guy, I'm not making this up, this young man in a white robe walks up my staff and says, I've got a Bluetooth speaker in my car. Should I get it? My team says, please get it. So here he is, this, he's a monastic community guy of some kind, Catholic, Episcopal, I don't know. He's wearing his robe. He gets his Bluetooth speaker, sets it up on the steps of National City Christian Church. But then he says just what I would say. Um, now, I don't know how to get the sound from the <laughs> church through the speaker, but fortunately there was a 16-year-old teenage girl <laughs> overhearing the conversation. Oh, I can do that. And of course she did. And when I told my, my son, he said, Dad, any of us could have done that. <laughs> right. So all of Thomas Circle heard this service and the choir and people sitting on benches began just to listen. And Barbara William Skinner, one of our elders, African-American leader, said to me, she leaned over and said, I can feel, during the service, I can feel the fear lifting. It feels like Pentecost. I can feel the fear lifting. And so, I loved a letter I got from a church. It said, uh, they're now coming in a bus from Pennsylvania. Should we bring our own candles? We had these little, these little cool electric candles. Have you seen them? They're, they're, well, we had plenty of those. And so we, we read six quick propositions in the church and then in front of the White House. I'm just going to quickly, do you mind if I just go through some of these? I'll, I'll be brief. There's a whole statement called reclaimingjesus.org. You can find it. You can find the video. You can find this reclaiming. Jesus.org or sojo.net, our own web website. It's all there. Read the whole thing. It's, but let me, let me just, just say, it's a series of things we believe, therefore we reject. That's important. You can't say we believe unless it means something. So we say we believe, therefore we reject. Number one, we believe each human being each human being is made in God's image and likeness 
and racial bigotry is a brutal denial of the image of God in some of the children of God. Therefore, we reject the resurgence of white nationalism and racism in our nation on many fronts, including the highest levels of political leadership. Number two, we believe we are one body in Christ. There is to be no oppression based on race, gender, identity, or class. Therefore, we reject misogyny, the mistreatment, violent abuse, sexual harassment, and assault of women being further revealed in our culture and politics, including in our churches, and the oppression of any other child of God. Sound like the news last night? Three, we believe to treat the hungry, we believe how we treat the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the stranger, the sick, and the prisoner is how we treat Christ himself. You ever heard a sermon about that? Yesterday? Therefore, we reject the language and policies of political leaders who would debase and abandon the most vulnerable children of God. For we believe the truth is morally central to our personal and public lives. Jesus promises you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Therefore, we reject the practice and pattern of lying that is invading our political and civic life. We believe in Christ's way of leadership is servanthood not domination. We support democracy not because we believe in human perfection, but because we do not. (laughs) Therefore, we reject any moves toward autocratic political leadership and authoritarian rule. We believe authoritarian political leadership is a theological danger, and we will resist it. And finally, we believe Jesus when he tells us to go into all the world to make disciples. Our churches and our nations are part of an international community whose interests always surpass national boundaries. Therefore, we reject America first as a theological heresy. It's interesting, in the church, those declarations got applause after every one from an elder. And then we read them at the White House in a procession of church elders. And some of us, church elders had to walk all the way to the White House (laughs) and to walk around and the Pentecostal prayers, the people were with us. So I want to conclude with these days and these times together with um, who Jesus calls us to be. You know, the very, the Beatitudes that we all know so well um, were his charter uh, of a new order. (laughs) Um, Those who'd be blessed, who'd be signs of that new order that would turn the world upside down. They'd be the poor in spirit, those whose empathy can make them mourn those who are meek or humble, those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness and justice, which in the Bible are often the same word, righteousness and justice. Those who are pure in heart, those who are merciful toward others, those who are peacemakers or conflict resolvers, and those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for doing the right thing, That's what will change the world. That's the new order. Those are the behaviors that signal that something new is happening among us. We're not just stuck on our old sociological categories. When sociology trumps our theology, we are in trouble. Then he says, so you go, be salt and light. And I've been thinking a lot about salt and light, and I close with with this. Salt and light are not the same thing. 
Salt is that which preserves and conserves and upholds those communal values we need for the health of a society, the glue that holds things together. Preserving what is necessary and good is what salt does. And isn't that what, at their best, conservatives are drawn to? Not when they're sold out to militarism or corporatism or racism, but to preserve, hold on to the values that we need for families, for parenting, for keeping our society. That's what salt is, and so we should be the salt, and that's the best of conservative philosophy, when you think about it. But light is what shines on what is wrong, reveals the dark places, shines and shows how we shouldn't accept this anymore. And how we can be pointed, a beacon of light, to new and better places. This is what progressives or liberals in their best sense are drawn to. Shine the light. Point to what we want, what we hope for, as our sister did on that day 50 years ago, of what we want when Dr. King was on that balcony. This is maybe the best of what some of those who call conservatives want and some of those who call themselves liberals want. I hadn't thought of that before. Salt and light. I often say, don't go left, don't go right, go deeper. Don't go left, don't go right, go deeper. And I love the image of being the light of the world. We don't push back the darkness by just polarization. We push back the darkness with the one who we say is our light. In him is light. And the darkness has not, will not, will never overcome it, says John. That has to be our hope. Desmond Tutu taught me that hope is not a feeling of optimism. They're not the same thing. Hope isn't a feeling or a mood or a cup half full. Hope is a decision you make because of what we call faith. It's a decision you make, and, and when Desmond Tutu and his, his allies, one of whom is going to be with me tomorrow in Washington, when they acted in hope in the face of all the violence and the oppression, on days there was no optimism, they acted in hope. Because when you see what's wrong, you act against it. And that's what provides the hope. The text I love to say, and I will say it at the end of this time, is from Hebrews. Faith is the substance, you know the text, of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We're at a moment when despair could control us and take us over and make us the tribal people in Washington they want us to be. It could make, drive us into despair and not action, but just reaction all the time to one another. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen that we see through the eyes of faith. And my paraphrase of that text is this. Hope means believing in spite of the evidence and then watching the evidence change. Or as I wrote back to those people on the bus coming from Pennsylvania, don't worry, we'll have enough candles for everyone. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Wallace. Uh, 
I feel fortunate that I don't have to respond to, <laughs> to that. <laughs> and uh, I'm uh, delighted, though, that we have our community leaders here and uh, our wonderful community leaders who inspire us uh, all along. And I will just uh, ask if anyone wants to start with a response uh, instead of... Uh, <laughs> okay, Sandy. Our mayor, Sandy Simpson. Can I have a podium? Is that okay? I saw this look on Bill's face when I said we start to the left that I don't think he expected me to say. I had the opportunity to be here last night to listen to Jim and be challenged by Jim and to think about my remarks. And so I took the privilege of making some written notes from last night's uh, conversation that was had. But you know, as a follower of Jesus and as, a, as the mayor... I would first tell you, Jim, this because there are some in the crowd that may know it and others that may not. But <clears throat> upon deciding to run for mayor, going into <clears throat> various places, occasionally someone would ask me, are you a Republican? Are you a Democrat? And I would say, I'm not going to answer that. And they thinking I was being a smart aleck. And I said, the reason I'm not going to answer it is because neither one of them have the answers to the things that we need to do, have all the answers to the things that we need to do to fix this city. Neither the Republicans nor the Democrats. I'd say the same for the left or the right. But you know, I think about the things that, uh, that we have to do as leaders. And first off, I realize that we have to lead me before I can lead anybody else. And without leading me and understanding really what that means, uh, then it's impossible to be the mayor of this city. I give books out occasionally, like I'll probably give copies of Jim's book out. And in the front of that book, I have a thing I paste in there. And then it says, five years from now, you will be the same person as you are today. But for the people you meet and the books that you read, which was written by Charlie Tremendous Jones. And I can assure you, I do not want to be the same person I am today, five years from now. And I hope to God's sake, for God's sake, that I am not the same person today as I was five years ago. And Jim, in your book on God's side, <clears throat> uh, on God's side, what religion forgets and politics hasn't learned about serving the common good, you know, it is a game changer. You can just look at the back. It's thought-provoking. But you know, the prophets, you said we're going to be measured. If the prophets are right, we're going to be measured on how we treat the poor, how we treat the vulnerable and the stranger. And our next battle is to practice that division by seeking the ethics of common good in an age of selfless, selfishness. I would suggest it's not just an age of selfishness. I would say that it's an age that's unprecedented on disruptions. The array of disruptions that we have today is unprecedented. So what do we do? First, who am I serving? I'm serving God first. And as elected official, then I serve you know, the, those who elected me. But I would say this, that if we're going to win this battle, it's going to take a change of mindset. And that mindset change, the person that's written something most recently that I happen to subscribe to and really makes you think or made me think. And so as I tell you this, it's me talking to myself as I read it. And I thought, these are the things that I need to understand to lead. And first, it was written by Chris Vallotton in his book, Poverty, Riches, and Wealth. And what he says is that he proposes that believers don't have permission to live with limited mindsets. He points out to his readers that born-again believers have several distinct advantages in creating solutions to complex problems. And he gives us seven things we can do, but I'll just tell you three quickly. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Consequently, consequently God who envisioned everything and spoke the world into existence, lives inside of us. Maybe we should all wear one of those signs on our chest that says, God on board, just to remind ourselves of the fantastic cargo that we carry. The second thing he says is we have access to the gift of wisdom. The gift of wisdom is one of the nine supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit. 
We should think of it as wisdom of Solomon on steroids. And the third thing that he says out of the seven is that we have the mind of Christ that means that we really think like God. This is otherworldly. We are God's divine think tank. So many preachers misquote this scripture on the mind of Christ, often taking the verses that God has meant to inspire us and using them to reduce what God has meant. Further, the mind of Christ is our X factor, our secret weapon, our brain trust turbocharger. But to activate your heavenly advantage, you must lose the compliant, the religious rule keeper, black and white mindset so that you can travel to the journey of mystery, miracles, and divine mayhem. Christians have become predictable. We've become boring, uninspired people. Yet, as Chris says, I found as a radical, forethinking activist who in three short years altered the whole course of human history. So what do we do? I'm reminded of what George Washington Carver did. And I don't think there's anybody in this room that walked a pathway like he walked and faced the hardships and the challenges that he faced. But the story is that every morning he woke up and as he got dressed and he started communing with God after prayers and all, that it may be that he would hold a flower in his hand or he would hold a peanut. And he would say, God, please reveal to me the powers that are in this flower or the powers are in this peanut. Well, it's by him seeking God in those moments of solitude that the things were revealed. And George Washington Carver is really no different than me and you. So why are we not every morning in our quiet time, in our time with God, saying, God, what is it that you want me to do for the common good to help make sure that our society is judged in a manner that's in keeping with your word? So I would just challenge each one of us to realize that we are that light. We are the light. And if we're not, it's only because we allowed ourselves to be snuffed out because the Holy Spirit lives in us and there's no power that exists like that. Thank you. Commissioner Ludgood, thank you. You know, when I was trying to figure out how to approach this, I started, it took me down a journey that, that, I, have, um, that I have been traveling ever since I went into public life because I was enjoying what I was doing. And so uh, when I got ready to run for office, I sought God's advice. I said, look, you know, I'm doing, this is what I'm doing. I like this. Is this the next step for me? Is this something that uh, you can find joy in? And so as I considered that, I looked for the places where I could um, bring that to bear in my work. And so when this whole notion of, public discipleship came, was, was raised with me, then I, I jotted down three or four things weeks ago. And uh, in my response, I decided what I was going to do is see those things that I had, identif had identified for myself, the things that I, that I was going to strive to, um, to show, to display as I went about my business as an elected official, the things that, that our speaker hit on. Reverend Wallace, you know, some time ago I decided that it was critical in my life to have personal congruity. And by that I mean that I want to walk my talk. Always, no matter whatever setting I'm in, whatever it is that I'm preaching, I want to see that walked out in my life. And so the first thing that, um, the most difficult piece in I guess when I heard it, it felt like an affirmation, is the prophetic voice. And you say that, and it sounds nice, and it rolls off your tongue, but if you remember, our prophets had to run for their lives. They weren't saying things that people wanted to hear. They were saying things that literally got them run out of town, stoned, and, and all of that. 
But I think sometimes in, as uh, public officials, we have this tension of re-election. How prophetic am I willing to do if it will impair my ability to be reelected? But I think that we have to be fearless. We've got to be willing to tackle the giants. And so uh, Reverend Wiles asked the question, what trains are you trying to stop? And so I will just tell you that the train that I have decided to stop before this morning, I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what to call it. But I have declared war on poverty. Public enemy number one. And every single system in our community that keeps people locked in poverty, you are on my radar. Okay. The second thing, and please, Bill, tell me when four minutes is. I'm probably already three into it. The second thing, uh, I said, what you do cannot be about your self-interest. That whatever I do in my spiritual life, I know that that is about the upbuilding of God's kingdom. That's clear. I got some new language now for this in my public role. And that is, uh, I'm a custodian of the soul of a nation. And so as I do my work, it's got to be for the public good. It is not about me. That if any concerns about how this is going to impact me, I've got to reject that. Because it is, this work is about others. The third thing, and I'm going to stop. I hope I have enough time. I always wanted to be, I wanted to, to maintain a spirit of humility. In fact, when I was running for election, I had people to come up to me and say to me, Merceria, please don't change. And what they meant was continue to be approachable, be accessible, and... You know, uh, we have to be really careful as elected officials in the, with this whole humility thing because people will blow smoke. They'll tell you how great you are, and they like to do it in comparative terms. Oh, you're so much better than X. And so we have to reject that. We have to uh, risk that and be, resist that rather and be able to acknowledge the contributions of others. But there's a flip side to that. We also have got to be willing to turn over the tables when it's appropriate. Now, we didn't see a lot of Jesus turn over the tables, but when he was up to here with injustice, Mm -hmm. that's what he did. And so we've got to be willing to do that as well. And so our speaker this morning, you got to say, you got to see what's wrong and act against it. Good morning, everyone. I uh, am so glad that Michael let me go next because I'd hate for this to be anticlimactic um, (laughs) because we have an August uh, community group here. But I'd like to share some of my thoughts uh, from the chamber perspective, the business community perspective. Um, Reverend Wallace's book, America's Original Sin, it had a a huge effect on me. And certainly his... um, sermon yesterday and lecture last night and comments today, um, I think it should make all of us think and begin to think about ways that we we can stop those trains and what role we each individually can play in that. As I started thinking about this, it really reminded me of some recent work that we've been directing at the chamber, and it really comes from a national chamber research study that took over a year called Horizons Initiative, Chambers in 2025. And it was about the changing uh, face of chambers across this country. And it really boils down to something that Reverend Wallace said yesterday. I think joining things is something that we're really challenged with, uh, whether it be a chamber or um, any kind of club or even a, a church. I mean, this is something that, that all of us are struggling with as people are less and less likely to join. The most significant influences um, that were in that study, and there were eight of them that were focused on such things as embracing technology, uh, the global economy, 
one that really sort of rises to the surface, in my opinion, has to do with diversity and inclusion. From, as, as Reverend Wallace points out in the, uh, in the book, you know, we're quickly becoming a country where um, the majority is minority populations. Um, those, are, those, are spe- those are facts that we're all dealing with. And that's why diversity and inclusion is more and more important as we move forward, if we want to remain strong communities. And it certainly relates back to our Christian faith. As the report points out, even though it, of course, is the moral and right thing to do, the, the comment in there that really struck me was building a future-focused chamber or business community without an inclusion strategy would at best be unwise. At best, unwise. And that makes a whole lot of sense to me, and I'll tell you why. I've been in the chamber business for almost 25 years, and I believe that at my core, I believe that the business community unequivocally should have a hand in pushing for and implementing positive change in whatever community they're located. And that includes, of course, many of the things that uh, Reverend Wallace has brought to us. I invite you to think about Atlanta, for example, the Atlanta business community during the Civil Rights Movement. The Atlanta business community played a key role, there is no question about it, a key role in avoiding the sort of violence that took place in many other important business cities throughout the, the American South. And it's not without warts, of course, Atlanta, but is today um, a city that's metropolitan area has one of the strongest African-American middle classes in this country. And I think that groundwork was, was laid there. And they're certainly not cast out of some superior stone. I'm not saying that, but rather they've had good leadership. I think that continues today, which was willing to tackle those tough questions And we do here in Mobile as well. We have leaders that care about this community and want to do just that. And so the business community has to be part of that. Clearly, um, our original sin, of course, plagues um, us across this country in lots of different ways. But I am a person that is a a glass half full personality. You wouldn't want your chamber president to not be. So I truly believe that it can always get better, and we can work together to make that happen and to deal with these lingering issues that we're often uh, really nervous to talk about. My sincere hope is that the business community can be a part of the solution. That's the bottom line. I read The Economist. It's always good to kind of see what the rest of the world thinks about what's going on here in the U.S., and one of the things that struck me, and it was an article back in 2010, it posited that ultimately economic growth is the solution to many of society's ills. I believe that, and that's why I believe that can be a very, very important part. Quickly, as I close, I'll tell you, for me personally, it involves my personal faith. Every day, I hear what my parents taught me and what I've tried to live by, and that is, if you're a Christian, there should never be a gap between your private walk and your public talk. It needs to be absolutely seamless. But of course, the problem is that that's really kind of hard for us sinners, right? Um, We have to work on that continually and be very purposeful about it. Our friend, uh, Carolyn Akers, I know a lot of you know her at the Mobile Area Education Foundation. One of her best quotes is that a vision without action is a hallucination. (laughs) That's why we have to be strategic about that. And all of us have to work together to continue to change our community for the better. Thank you. Good morning. morning. I have my timer out so that I don't run over time. Uh, one of the things they taught us in the business school at Tulane when you make presentations is to be on time, be specific, and be brief, and you may be asked to come back. Uh, and so um, I certainly want to make certain that I'm respectful of our time uh, that has been allotted to us this morning. Thoroughly enjoyed 
um, your presentation, Dr. Wallace, and most importantly, the opportunity just to share with you. I mentioned to Dr. Deal and Ms. Ruth Deal that they must really be scraping the bottom of the barrel to get to my name, <laughs> to come and to share and be a part of, uh, of this, this group that has spoken to you this morning. Uh, but as it relates to the message that we heard and, and how do we as business professionals and individuals and more importantly Christians impact our world in which we live in, it is about not having this duplicity of personality. Being a Christian on one hand and being a professional uh, in another respect or regard, the two are one. The scripture clearly states that if anyone be in Christ, they become a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And as a result of that, you and I have to carry the charge that Jesus gave us, and that is to make the world better. Uh, as we heard about the difference between salt and light, salt in those days were also a preservation agent. They didn't have sub-zero freezers and those things to preserve meat and those things, so you would pack it in salt. But you also can't add salt to anything and it not show up. Am I right? If you put salt in something, you will taste it. And what does that mean? What Jesus is saying to us that we can't be uh, secret service Christians. But when a Christian shows up, you know that they're there because of the impact that it has. We call it flavor. We call it, oh, I just love, I don't know what it is, but it's the seasoning that you put in there. And so he left us here to be the seasoning of the world because we do live in a very bland, sinful, dark world. But he left us here not only just to be salt, but also to be light. To bring exposure to that which is wrong, not just in the world, but within ourselves. And so if we're going to have an impact, honestly, in the world, it begins with us. Internally first, that we should, what, work out our own salvation with what? Fear and trembling. Understanding who God is, reverencing him. Understanding what he has called us to a higher plane. To put our lives on a higher trajectory before we ever call anyone else to do something that we're unwilling to do ourselves. Typically what I say when it relates to the injustices and things that happen in our world is simply this, hurt people hurt people. And so those who are hurting others and oppressing others in some way, shape, form, or fashion are suffering from something in and of themselves. It may be their own idea of personal inadequacies or this is just how it's always been, whatever the case may be. But as a newborn babe in Christ, I began to see myself different uh, than I did prior to that conversion experience. Because the scripture also says that we are to be transformed by the renewing of what? Our minds. And so what we have to understand is that the mouth speaks from the abundance of the heart. And so who you are, you will tell me who you are and what you're about, not necessarily by your actions, but by the things that you say. Out of the heart flows what? The issues of life. It's what you're about. It's what is stored up within you. And so for the Christian who's studying the word of God, spending quiet time, having solitude, communing with the word of God and fellowship with him on a regular basis, you can't help but talk about what God is doing in your life. It spills over into every facet of your life, your private life, your professional life, your love life with your wife or a significant other, whatever the case may be, your business associates, whomever you come in contact with, that light will shine and they will get a sprinkle of salt because it always makes a difference. And so as we look at our world and as we look at the lack of civility that exists in Washington, D.C., in Montgomery, sometimes here in Mobile and across the country, as this darkness tries to cascade across the landscape of this country that we love, as Christians, we need to stand as those candles and shed light. And the ultimate decision, how all of this will ultimately play out is God, because he is the one who had created this great drama that we call life. It is a journey and we don't know how it's going to end. The Bible says that he's the author and the finisher of what? Our faith. And so my challenge to each of us, myself included, is this as I conclude. The scripture says that when David had fulfilled God's purposes in his generation, he died. My goal in life is to fulfill God's purposes for my life in my generation. And then I will pass. And then I will experience what the Apostle Paul affectionately spoke about when he says to be absent from the body is to be what? To be present with the Lord. 
And if that is our goal, ladies and gentlemen, that is the aim of our existence, is to fulfill everything that God has created us to be because he indeed is the potter and we're merely the clay. It's not about us. It really is all about him. And as we look to do that, then we don't see color. What we see is what the Samaritans saw when the man was on the side of the road that he needed help. Didn't worry about his color, didn't worry about his class, didn't worry about who his parents were, where he went to school or didn't go to school. He saw a person in need and he did what? He met the need. That's exactly what God requires of each of us. And so it's an awesome privilege to have been asked to speak. I hope that I've said something uh, that has uh, helped you. Gigi Armbrecht said to me prior to this, she said, I can't wait to hear your remarks. And I said to her, me either. <laughs> Because I don't know what I'm going to say, but I'm going to leave that to God. But thank you so much. This has been such, so beneficial to me. God bless you.